0: All right, let's go to the book of Psalms, chapter 4. See, what we're doing right now is the reason I've tried to stop this because I like to chat. I'll catch myself, I'm 10 minutes into this right here, you know, and uh, so let's get at it. I love you, and I even love the Texas folks back there. If we can't beat them, we have to deal with it, right? That's, it. It's, that's just the way it is. You got to deal with it. You got to eat it, and uh, no excuses at all. And uh, hook them horns and, I mean, sorry, hook them <laughs> horns. <laughs> I will say this, besides my beloved Crimson Tide, greatest uniforms in football. I love those burnt orange uniforms, all white, that's a blessing. Those horns up there, I know Miss Laura loves them, that's good. <laughs> that was a, a great love affair right there, <laughs> Oklahoma and Texas. Let's get that started. I did not even thought of that till just now, I just thought of that. Like Auburn and Alabama, you hear about the guy that moved from Auburn to Georgia. He raised IQ in both states. So we we've been talking about, and, and I, I think unintentionally, we have emphasized the word of God. It's just emerged in the sermons. Sunday morning, we talked about following God. And you follow God by faith. And Abraham is the example of that like no other. And faith is really important. Faith is believing that which has been revealed. Another way of saying it is faith is believing what God said because he said it. So sometimes preachers will say things like this. and, And unless they've really carefully contextualized the statement. It's it's kind of misleading, all right? And they'll say that uh, once you don't have any idea what to do and you can't see the end, you got no way, no idea which way to go, then you just have to trust God. That's not at all what faith is. Faith is not a leap into the dark. It's a step into the light. So the Bible says that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet. And so living by faith is believing what God said. So the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. The, the idea is that Jesus is not here. So we obviously he's omnipresent. I mean, physically, he's not here. And we can't go to where he's at and watch him, follow him, imitate him. Now we walk by faith, not by sight. Where does faith come from? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the See that? So see, that takes all of the mysticism out of the life of faith. Faith is not saying, well, I feel something. I feel good about this. I'm going to really bear down and believe it hard. That's not faith. Faith is believing what God said, obeying it, acting upon it, even though all of the pressures of one's circumstances may make it difficult to do so. Faithfulness is believing what God said and doing it. And that's what we talked about Sunday morning and Sunday night. Blessed is the man that walketh not with the counsel and godly, his delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And then last night, we uh, talked about... We talked about the Messianic Psalm there in Psalm 2 and how that the kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers have taken counsel together against the Lord. But the psalmist said, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That's impossible without the word of God. Now that wasn't our intentionally our message last night, but that that emerges as the only explanation for trusting God, believing God who he is, as he's revealed in the scripture, leaning upon that and living accordingly. And so, all right, so that's what we've been talking about so far. And so tonight, we're going to read Psalm 4. We're going to talk about what to do uh, at the end of the day, okay? And so we're going to talk about Psalm 4, verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O oh, ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek leasing? Selah? But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up Thy light, the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for help as we look into your word, and and uh, and we hope to be encouraged by it, for our faith to be strengthened. Not, Lord, because we want to be entertained, or we want to be... Um, yeah, it, we, we want our lives to be softened, and the edges to be smoothed out as much as we want to be faithful. We know that life will be difficult, and this world is no friend of grace, and that there will be times of struggle we're asking, Lord, that you help us to be faithful, that you'll help us to stand and and we ask this in your name, Amen, well. There are a lot of expressions that uh, I find to be irksome because they are overused, right? Anybody anybody feel that way? I don't know if you catch some of those things. And there's quite a few. One of them that drives me nuts, and if you do this, I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying it's a weird thing. Stop saying it. Um, <laughs> you know what people say? Um, it is what it is. Now, every now and then, that actually fits, Right It means something that actually relates to what is being discussed, and on those rare occasions, I don't find it to be as irksome, but it, it, when you're just throwing it in because you don't have anything meaningful to say, I would say just here's a, just don't say anything at all. Amen. <laughs> there's a lot of them. how about another one um yeah, right? Do you hear that all the time? Yeah, right constantly again. All you nice folks that say that, I love you. I'm not trying to insult you. But how about this one here? At the end of the day, you hear that on the news. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, at the end, it was cool the first 87 times you heard it, right? In our, in our passage, some commentators, expositors, suggest that one of the features of Psalm 4 is that it is an evening hymn, that it's an evening psalm. Now, textually, I don't know that there's any reason necessarily to believe that. But they say that Psalm 3 is a morning psalm and Psalm 4 is an evening psalm. And just with that thought in mind, I want to ask us, ask ourselves. I want us to ask ourselves, at the end of the day, what kind of shape are our thoughts in, in reference to God and to faithfulness, to who we are and what we're doing with our lives? That phrase literally means to take all things, everything into consideration. That's what you're saying. At the end of the day, when we're taking everything into consideration and it's a setup for saying something very noteworthy, right? So I've considered all things at the end of the day, roll tide, right? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? That's kind of the idea about the saying there. You know, when the sun's going down, this is the motif here, right? I'm not saying this passage doesn't work in the morning. It's our sermonic motif, okay? When the sun is going down and at the end of the day and all the work is done and the family is safe and they are settled, it's then that you're able to fully comprehend What is meaningful in life, right? I mean, what really counts? You can look at your day and be glad for some things that you did and glad for some things that you didn't do and you can think about the next day and here's what I'm going to do. And we need that kind of approach to life as a whole at the end of an era, at the end of an age, at the end of a week, a year, a day. We ask ourselves at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, this... It's what I'm living for. This is what's important. In Psalm 1, we saw the contrast between the ungodly and the godly. And we believe, I believe, and wouldn't fight all day about it, but I I think there's reason to believe that the picture that is being painted there ultimately is with Israel, God's people, awaiting the realization of that kingdom. And they are... Like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And they're waiting for their fruit to be produced in their season in that kingdom. And they will be fruitful. And that kingdom will be restored here on this earth. Israel will be restored. And then the ungodly are not so. But are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. And there's a focus on his law. Because his law communicates who he is. His nature. His moral essence. His holiness emerges as we understand his law. That's Psalm 1. And then Psalm 2 was the Messianic Psalm, which while Psalm 1 is about the law, and Psalm 2 seems to be a focus on the prophetic. The law and the prophets, if you will. This is what God deems right, righteous, what will produce fruit, And here is what God's people who are faithful should expect. There's the prophetic, right? And that's what we saw in chapter two. Both chapters emphasize being blessed or blessed, happy, truly fortunate people. Chapter one says you can be that if you can avoid the counsel of the ungodly and walking in that way. If you can avoid that and delight in the law of the Lord, you can be blessed. And chapter 2 says, blessed are those people who put their trust in him, right? We've we've, we've been down these roads. And then, here's something I want you to notice now. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm that directly addresses the Messiah and those hopes that are attached to his return, those aspects of the kingdom, those things that we can look for and expect, which is why all through the book of Psalms you read over and over and over about earth and land and prosperity and possessions, and that is what is going to be an aspect of that earthly kingdom. Does that, does that make sense? That's why when we read the passage, I know you've heard this from your pastor many times. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, uh, seek my face, and Turn from their sins, and I misquoted it there, I think. And it says, then will I hear from heaven and forgive your sins and heal your what? Land. We understand that there's a potpourri of blessings, if you will, that one might experience by turning to God in repentance. We're not opposed to that spiritual application. When we bristle, it's when you make that a patriotic passage. It's not about America, it's about Israel. And a coming kingdom, and it's about land returning to fruitfulness and all of that. So it's a it's a messianic psalm. I know your pastor said this to you because I've heard him say it eight hundred times, <laughs> and I mean that in a good way. Like a third of the Bible is about the kingdom. A massive percentage of the word of God is about that earthly kingdom that has been prophesied, but yet we don't hear it preached. I mean I mean almost never. And it makes me think that preachers are more concerned about this world than the one to come. Now, all right. Messianic Psalm. Now, I want you to notice that the next Messianic Psalm is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the what? Who hath set thy glory above the heavens. That's a wonderful chapter. And you can read it and dig through it. Look at the last verse. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Between there, Psalm 2, where the kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers have taken counsel against the Lord. But the people of God are admonished to look for that day when the Lord will uh, reign as king. And then we leap over to chapter 8 that describes the conquest and the rule and the glory in all the earth. See that? In between there is a bridge, if you will. It is a collection of Psalms that seem to elaborate upon the suffering of the people of God who were waiting for the realization of his purposes. As we quoted the other day, His purposes shall ripen fast, unfolding by the hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Right now, the bud is pretty bitter. It's pretty difficult. A close family friend yesterday, one of our close family friends, they took her off of life support and she passed away yesterday. These kind of griefs are difficult to bear the trips to the doctor and the aging bodies and the lost loved ones and the... You understand. We're struggling here, not to mention the last two nights and the problems we talked about on those nights with the crazy culture and rebels that hate God and the madness and the moral perversity. And we're down here on this earth, in this world, struggling, looking for a coming king. Now, Israel will find these verses as we have said repeatedly I think they will find them the most noteworthy when they are on this earth in the tribulation period being being kept safe through the rigors of tribulation looking for the king to come right matthew twenty four talks about i think it's matthew twenty four it says to Lift up your head, redemption draweth nigh. And all the southern gospel songs use that for a rapture verse. It's not about the rapture. It's about Israel seeing the Lord return. And right, doesn't the Bible say that they will look upon him whom they have pierced? Right? And so here are several chapters that seem to communicate the kind of suffering, the kind of struggle, the kind of soul anguish One chapter talks about grief and weeping. It's very difficult to preach to people the hype of joy and rejoicing and leave off how to grapple, how to deal with, how to live through the griefs and the losses and the struggles. It takes a real thoughtful preacher to take all of that apart. It's easier to just say, y'all be happy. Why are y'all so down in the dump? Boy, God's going to pull us through. Ain't the Lord's going to turn it around. That's easy to preach, and there's some truth in that. But there's always somebody in that crowd that's saying, I don't think he's turning this problem around. I'm going to die. My father's not coming back. He's been buried. Do you understand So I'm not being light. I'm not being disrespectful about one's hope. I'm saying if our hopes are not rooted in the soil of truth, they will disappoint us. That's why the Bible says hope deferred maketh the heart sick. Somehow the Bible believing Christian has to learn to live with concurrent emotions You can sometimes live with the joy of an unshaken faith alongside the pain of a genuine suffering. And as you get older, there's almost no other way to do it but like that. You've all heard the saying that a parent is only as happy as his least happy child. Man, you have a few kids, you can lay awake all the time. My kids were on the road one time. I got a call from my beloved son. It was about three in the morning. And he and his friend, matter of fact, his friend is the one whose mother just passed away yesterday. Still friends, work together. Well, they thought it'd be great to call me at three in the morning. Well, when they were on the road, if I got a call in the middle of the night, it was immediate, overwhelming fear, right? And so I answered my phone and I hear some hysterical stuff, and then the phone hangs up. So now I'm now I go from fear to almost I, I'm just in shock. So I'm trying to dial them back, and you know Lisa's snoring, I can't hear. And <laughs> so I get them on the phone, and they there's laughter and a bunch of carrying on and giving me the business. And so being the guy that I am, I said, oh, boy, you guys are a mess. Y'all doing okay. Y'all love you. And they hang up on me, you know, because they think that's funny. You do it again. They were just having fun. But I ain't telling you I broke out in a sweat. You know what I'm talking about? I literally, I just, because I, I didn't tell them this because I didn't want to be a stick in the mud. But I, I, it was just like a trembling fear. And there are issues in life that will keep you awake at night. And when you're a young couple and you have a third grader that's not making straight A's, well, that keeps you awake at night. <laughs> and Then when he's 13, you wish that's the only problem you had, right? And then when they get married, they're not your responsibility. You don't worry less, you worry more. Are y'all with me? You know what I'm talking about? I'm not advocating worry. I know Christians shouldn't worry, but if you're awake, <laughs> it's hard not to sometimes. Now, you, you get the point. So in our text, I feel like we have a wonderful example of how to make it through some of these times. Verse 1 says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. He's crying out to God. So I, I wrote a little, a silly little rhyme, a little phrase as a proposition for the sermon, all right? And it's silly, but I I did it on purpose. At the end of every day, call on God in a special way. At the end of every day, call on God in a special way. And you can apply that any way you want to do it. It doesn't have to be at the end of the day. It could be at the end of the hour. It could be at the end of the night. It could be at the end of the week. It could be at the end of the year. All right? The point is, call on God in a special way. It doesn't always do a lot of good to just say words to be saying words. I'm checking the box. I said my prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. Right? pray the Lord, my toys to break so nobody can play with them or whatever. That's better than no praying. But it's not enough. I think it was Bunyan who said it would be better for our, and I'm going to get the quote wrong, but the gist is we, we would be better off to have our prayers be with heart and no words than to be with words and no heart, right? So my challenge is for you to call on God Please, you guys, you have to start praying at some point in your life. And I would encourage you young people, don't make it about a formula. Don't try to make it something super spiritual or deep. Make it you talking to God because you trust him. To call on him and to get into the habit of calling on him in a special way. Look at Psalm 145. You know, Genesis 424 talks about when men began to call upon the name of the Lord. I love that. That now man has this relationship with God, this understanding of who God is that lent itself to the habit of calling on God. Our friend John Hawkins says you will depend upon that which you have that upon which you have been depending. So if, you're, if you depend upon the thrills of life and the entertainment and the hobbies to sustain you and to make your life meaningful, then when you're suffering, that becomes what you trust. You see, but if you're trusting God, if you're calling on God, if you're really leaning on Him, then that's where you go when the adversity comes. Psalm 145 and look at verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. Now there's two things there. It's like he reiterates. He's not all that call upon him. So understand this. He's, the Bible says, draw nigh unto me and I will draw nigh unto you. You have to get into the habit, I'm pleading with you to get into the habit of calling on God. And don't wait till you get your life all together to do it or you'll never do it. Don't wait until you feel like you're a super Christian to talk to God. You'll never talk to God. And then when you do talk to God, talk to God within the framework of truth. Let your understanding of who he is and your expectation of what he's going to do be based upon truth. And that keeps you from having false expectations but we see that verse look at chapter 50 back up to chapter 50 please don't miss the simple challenge there that god is pro- or the promise that god has promised that he's near those who call upon him so i just feel listen i'm not trying to be hateful it matters not one bit how you feel when those feelings are cast against the certainty of god's promises it matters what God has said. Psalm fifty in verse fifteen. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. You know, sometimes I think we're it's easy to be irresponsible when you're preaching. You know, you get a little irritated and frustrated in the in the in the delivery of a sermon, and we throw our sermonic tantrums here and there. And we have a tendency to, I've heard preachers chide people for only praying when they get in trouble. Well, I don't think you should only pray when you get in trouble. But if you get in trouble, pray. (laughs) You understand? And one of the great things about God and his grace is that he's willing to be your last resort. Who else does that? He's there for you. He's forgiving. He's long-suffering. He knows your frame. He knows what you are. And he has promised to be nigh unto you when you call on him. Psalm, p- Psalm look at uh Psalm um 55. Look at Psalm 55. We've got a bunch of verses here. We're not going to see them all. Look at Psalm 55, verse 16. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. At the end of every day, call on God in a special way. What does that mean? What do I mean by that? How do we do that? You're in Psalm 4. Go back to Psalm 4 if you're not there. And I want to just challenge you with a few things quickly. Here's a few concluding thoughts about how to call on God. First of all, call on God with truth-based, reality-shaped theology. Truth-based, reality-shaped theology. Look at verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Verse 4, standing on sin, not commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. He's the God of righteousness. That brings a a lot of theological implication into the calling upon God, the crying out. Do you see that? Everybody has theology. Theology is not the result of the professional, the efforts of the professional theologian. Someone doesn't have to call you a theologian for you to have theology. Theology means the study of God. That's what it is. It's a discourse upon God. Your theology is what you believe to be true about God. And everyone has theology. They either have good theology or bad theology. They either have scriptural theology or they have flimsy humanistic theology. And our view of God shapes how we worship. It shapes the genuineness and the authenticity of our worship. You know, uh, the great change in our culture, I think, above all things, in my opinion, is the change in the way people see the truth. And secular uh, thinkers have noticed this. They call that postmodernism. No belief in absolutes. I think it was Alan Bloom who wrote that Closing of the American Mind back in the 80s. It was published. It was kind of a landmark thing. He was a professor at the University of Chicago. And he said that the one thing you can count on concerning any student coming to the University of Chicago is that they no longer believed in absolutes. The philosopher Francis Schaefer said the big change in the world, in the in the professing Christian world even, is the change in the way they view the truth. If your theology is not truth based, if it is not if it is not reality shaped, then your calling upon God will become less special. Does that make sense? It'll be like the person who thinks that God just exists for their benefit. But once we understand that we exist for His glory, right? And that He is matchless in His splendor. He is inexpressibly wonderful and unimaginably holy. And yet, He hears us. (laughs) And he draws nigh unto us when we call upon him. That becomes then a truth based, reality shaped kind of praying. It's absolutely essential. You know, look at the verse Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me in my distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. So, To go a little further, maybe a little more practical with what I'm saying, if our theology, if truth and reality are going to shape how we call upon God, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that prayer is like some kind of complex geometry equation. And you've got to get all the facts lined up or don't know use are praying. No, no, no. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying begin with where you are and what you know to be true about God. Start right there in the most basic sense and believe what you know to be true about God according to Scripture. And start there and call on God with those things in mind. And that makes for a special kind of praying. Amen. You know the Bible says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, right? You go to school every day and you feel like you're invisible, okay? You don't look like a supermodel. You don't have endless amounts of money and you're not a great athlete, so you're not there, right? We've all been there, some of us more than others. <laughs> you just feel invisible to the world. Let me tell you, you're not invisible to you. You're not invisible to the God that created you. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made, right? And so based upon that understanding, you start that day going to school. Lord, you know I hate school. And I hate school because all normal people hate school, Lord. (laughs) We understand this. And I hate school because I don't feel like I'm special. I don't feel like I'm extra smart. It's difficult for me. I don't feel like I'm seen by anybody. The pretty girls don't see me. The cool guys ignore me. I'm not good at sports. I feel like a dweeb. But you made me, God. And I know that you have something special for me. So help me see it, Lord. Help me understand it. Help me be a a faithful, young Christian. You see what I mean? And all of a sudden... You, you'll have courage and strength. You'll begin to gain that courage and strength, but it, instead of being a cocky humanistic strength or, a, or a, a strength that is driven and shaped by rage and resentment, it'll be rooted in the soil of God's purposes for you. That's what you do. And I'm going to tell you, God has a plan for every one of you guys that is wonderful and amazing and special, but you'll have to go through the difficulties of life to get there, and that's what we're talking about tonight. Amen. And it might help them if parents didn't flip out every time the wind changed directions. That's just that's just free, <laughs> right? We call on God at the end of every single day. Call on God in a special way, and it's a kind of praying that is truth based and reality shaped. And here in our text, we see that we should pray based upon what God has already done. See, see what He said: "Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress." Has God ever helped you? To be enlarged in distress means simply that he's been liberated, set free, delivered from what was distressing him. That's what he's saying. So you guys have seen God help you. You've experienced the consoling, comforting presence of God at one time or another. I hope you have. God does love you. Right? All you older folks, you've experienced it, but you forget it. So we pray based upon what he's already done. And then we pray based upon what we know he will do. What will he do? Hear me when I call, O God of my what? Righteousness. Shall not the God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth do right. God will do the right things. You don't have to wonder, you have to worry about God doing the wrong thing or or, or missing the point. God's not going to miss the point. He's going to get it. I think I felt like I spent the whole day trying to get Lisa and Laura and Jim to understand the point. And they didn't. (laughs) So all I can do is tell it to Jesus, right? The truth-based reality-shaped theology. Number two, talking about calling on God. Hey, this is very devotional. I know that. Okay? And I know we are doctrinal churches. We've talked about doctrine. We've talked about eschatology. We've talked about the kingdom and the place for these passages. We're going to wrap it up right here, hopefully, with some kind of challenge for you to be personally enriched by God's promises, call on him with truth-based reality-shaped theology. Number two, call on him with an awareness that what God has for us is infinitely better than what the world has. It's infinitely better. And I know that seems like an obvious preaching point, but do you believe that? I don't know that we believe that sometimes. I think we would admit it, but on the inside, we would say, yeah, but it sure doesn't seem to ring true in the daily walk because we get an attitude. We get discouraged and disappointed. Look at the text. He says in verse two, oh, ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? The world will take something that has glory intended and turn it into something shameful. And I'm saying that what God has for us is so much better. We don't need to rant about this all night, but you know as well as I do, that world out there is absolutely anti-God at every turn. And so it's important for you and I to educate ourselves with sound theology and to take that theology to God in our praying and let it shape our thinking and praying with the understanding that what God has is better What God has for you guys is better. Now understand, it's not always more thrilling, but it's better. I'm not saying there are no thrills in living for the Lord, but there's a lot of things in the world that are appealing. And you know that. The Bible says that there is joy in sin or pleasure in sin for what? A season. And so the devil seems to offer the benefits up front. And if you'll take this route and, 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 and make alliances with these people and f- take this path for joy, for your pleasure, for your thrills, it'll be awesome. And I'm telling you, it will be for a season. But then comes the price tag. But with God, what he has is so much better. Instead of being shameful, it's glorious. I can't tell you what a blessing it is to get together with my whole family. All the kids and the people they married and the grandchildren. And we can be together for, sometimes we can spend 30 or 40 minutes without being at anybody's throat. It's incredible how, <laughs> how good God is. It's awesome. All joking aside, it's a wonderful thing. There's glory in God's way, right? And in God's plan. been married Lisa for 35 years and... I've just been saying lame jokes for 35 years and she just stands there behind me and takes all the sarcasm and rolls her eyes and goes, greatest partner in the world a man could ever have. And that came from God. His way is it's just better. Purpose turned to vanity, you know, here in verse two, how long will ye love Vanity. Man, the things that we think are important, the things that we obsess over are so empty and vain. And then leasing, which is deceitfulness. It's falsehood. We have truth turned to lies. We need an awareness that what God has for us is infinitely better than what the world has. You have to believe that. Whatever situation you're in, you have to believe that. You have to believe that when you're praying for God to give you somebody to marry or if you're thinking about where you want to live. And 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 uh, man, sometimes a change of scene seems like the answer. That so you get there and it's a wasteland, right? It's a wilderness. Good luck finding this church in another town. That, I'm telling you, I know what I'm talking about. I can't think of 10 in any, anywhere in this country like this church. So everything gets dry in the midst of a thing, right? In the midst of the years. That's why revive us again in the midst of thy uh, years. I think is how it goes. In the middle of a job, you get it gets old. In the middle of a marriage, you have to try. <laughs> you have to put forth some effort. You have to think it through. You have to adjust some habits. In the middle of a tenure as a pastor, you have to restart your commitment and your faithfulness and your passion for the sermons that you preach and the people that you lead in the midst of a commitment to a local assembly you have to say i liked that guy's preaching 10 years ago and i thought it was the greatest thing i'd ever heard and i'm telling you right now he's a better preacher now than he was 10 years ago so if it's lost its luster it may be the listener I'm just telling you. He wouldn't mean that, but I'm telling you right now, he's a better preacher than he was ten years ago. I'm not even sure you could call him a preacher twenty years ago. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> no, it's not true. But you see what I'm saying? And so I'm I just I'm trying to plead with This is me trying to be a friend of the church. That's what I'm doing. This is not great preaching. This is a heart plea for you to see that the at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, calling out to God with a healthy, truth-based theology is step one. That's the big thing. And then doing it, believing that God's way is going to be better, it will require that you pay up front. It will require that you wait for the seasons. You'll have to wait for the tide to come in and for the fruit to be produced. But it will be better, I guarantee you. And then finally... May we call out to God at the end of the day. May we cry out to him in that special way with gladness over all that God has done to give us peace. That's it. That's a lot. That's a mouthful. But call out to God with gladness over all that God has done to give you peace. Look at um, verse seven. Thou hast put gladness in my heart More than the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. You may be thinking about that word peace. This is the way my mind works sometimes. When I'm hearing a preacher or a sermon and I know they're attempting to console me or to encourage me and I'm rather entrenched in my negativity. I would have a tendency to think peace is great for some people, but what I'm experiencing right now doesn't feel like peace. Anybody ever been there, right? And some people don't relate to that. Some people don't have any kind of mental health issues or any kind of emotional struggles, and they just don't understand a a depression or anxiety or fear or paranoia. Are you with me? And preachers, God bless them, they mean well, but they say some dumb things sometimes. They get on these subjects, and they—I mean, they don't literally—they don't know enough about medicine. What they know about medicine, you could write on a on a postage stamp. But doesn't keep them from being confident in their declarations. What I'm saying is, if you're one of those people who struggles mentally, emotionally—I'm not—and I'm not saying that in a disparaging way. Okay, when I say mentally, everybody who has a brain has to deal with their brain like they deal with their heart and their lungs and their bodies. We're in a fallen flesh. And it's difficult to be human, right? And imagine what it would be like to face these challenges without his peace. And you know and I know that the good days come back, right? They cycle back. So in the meantime, we cry out to God and we try to reorder our lives so that we can get ourselves back in a place where there's gladness and there's rejoicing and there's joy in our hope and faith and dreams. That's what we're trying to do. You know, he's given a salvific peace, that peace that is the consequence of our salvation. Romans 5.1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is the peace that is explained as the cessation of hostilities between a holy God and a sinner. In other words, guys, when a person is a sinner and they don't know God, they are at odds with God. They're separated from God. The Bible calls him their enemy. They are at enmity but when they are justified by faith when they turn to God right repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and they turn to him to save them from their sins not to get them through a bad day not to get them through a dark trial not to save them because they had a car wreck I mean when they turn to the Savior to save them from their sins God gives them peace the enmity is removed The antagonism between a holy God and sinful man. The antagonism is removed and there's peace. Some of you guys, I would bet, because I know people a little bit, some of you guys are struggling spiritually because you've got it in your mind that God is upset with your frailty. And I'm telling you that he loves you. And then he says he is nigh unto those who call upon him. He loves you guys. You see, your teacher may be a little sideways with you. (laughs) You may be grounded for the next six months. But God will hear you when you pray. Salvific peace. And then there's that sanctifying peace. Be careful for nothing. Don't you love that? Cognitive scaffolding in those King James words. The way the word is put together, it implies meaning. Careful is much better than the word anxious. Careful means full of care. And if you compare scripture with scripture, you'll see that those cares are often worldly things. Just having to live and to make a living and to buy and sell and get gain and eat and live and survive. And those cares, can they can overwhelm you. The Bible says, be careful for nothing, but in everything, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace which passeth understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I know I'm preaching to some people who've been doing a lot of worrying and not enough calling on God. Colossians 3 says to let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You may see this differently, and you're welcome to. Um, I don't have all the answers. but I've heard that passage explained all of my life as if. That means if you feel good about something, that means God gave you peace. Go ahead and do it. Some of the dumbest moves I've ever made, I felt awesome about them because I was yeah. getting my way. <laughs> God told me to do it. Amen. God woke me up. I heard a preacher say, God was waking me up. I knew he was giving me a message for Sunday. Every night I couldn't even get through the night. You know what I mean? God is speaking to me. I'm I'm just thinking, man, I wish God would speak to me like that. That that must be what's wrong with my sermons. They're awful, you know. I'm hearing nothing. (laughs) So this guy, middle of the week, he stops taking sinus medication, starts sleeping right through the night. It didn't have anything to do with God waking him up and talking. This is where God talks. So what does that verse mean? Let the peace of God rule in your heart. it means this. When you're deciding how to live. That rule. That's an arbitrator. Go this way or that way. Don't do this. Don't do that. You make those decisions. You protect your peace with God. You don't do anything to violate that peace. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about your growth as a Christian. The peace that is in your life. Because you're doing the right things the right way. Don't let any of that be violated. Because you're doing something that is unscriptural. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It's in the same passage. that says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that's how we get wisdom, right? I love you. I want to encourage you to call on God in a special way at the end of the day. Meaning when you've assessed all the things in your life, some of it's not going to be perfect. Some of it, unfortunately, may be quite heavy. Some of it may amount to regrets and sorrow over things you've done or haven't done. When you assess all that, call on God, believing that he can help you, he can give you peace, he can keep his promises, and he will. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this church. I'm so grateful for them. I'm so happy that I get to preach here and be their friends and encourage them in the faith.